week's action show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan. And DigitalOcean. Go to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code Here's the Thing, all one word like you're slurring it, and spin up your own Linux rig for free. And Linux Academy. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and invest in your mind while saving some money. Welcome to Linux Action Show, episode 456. My name is Chris. My name is Noah. Hello, Noah. Good morning to you. Guess what, everybody? Coming up on this week's episode of the Linux Action Show, the Plasma Desktop team. Yeah, a lot of them stop by and chat with us on some of the neat things they've been working on, stuff that's breaking news and things that are going to be coming down the road. Then after that, we'll go through the week's news. We have some picks for you and some feedback. But before all of that... We're going to take a look at the KDE Plasma desktop. That's yeah, that's that's pretty good. Although I just realized I want to do something a little oh, differently. Okay. No, it was good. It was good. I just there's is something... it the KDE Plasma desktop? <laughs> that's what the main section is, right? Uh... I know it's an interview with the KDE people. I don't know what they talked about. Well, plus I just said it. I just said it. It doesn't work when oh. I'm telling what's coming up. It doesn't work because I just said it. So that does that. You doesn't don't necessarily work. have to throw it to me. Like you could just do that. Yeah, but then you're just chilling and like you're. Just... Sitting there, you're like worthless. You're like worthless. Uh, I don't want to be worthless. Um, you know, here's a, here's a, here, okay, fine. Here's what else you could do. I got you an idea. Do, all right. You should probably mention, you guys probably, you should probably, what we should do is, what I want to do is right after I do all of that, I want to address the fact that the format of the show is a little different. The flow of the show. Okay. The flow of the show has changed a little bit. Um, and maybe you could just say that. You guys might notice after I'm done, you, say, well, you could say something like, you know, I don't know, just be gen- just be just be organic with it. Like, hey, you guys might have noticed that the show's flow has changed this week. We'll tell you more about it in the feedback segment. You want me to do that? I yeah, or something that. like that, and I can jump in. Oh, yeah. All right. Okay, let's try it again. Okay, all right. All right, John, please bring suggest. Here we go. Let's do it live. All right. Moon goes out. What? No, tide goes in. I just explained how it works. Damn it. The tide goes in, tide goes out. Can't explain that. It's the moon. All right. In three, in two. Welcome to Linux Action Show, episode 456. My name is Chris. My name is Noah. Hello there, Noah. Good morning to you, and good morning, everybody. We have a big show today. Coming up in just a couple of minutes, we'll chat with the Plasma Desktop team. Yeah, a lot of the folks behind the Plasma Desktop. Some of the cool things that are breaking news this week, and stuff that's going to be coming down the road. It is an end-to-end, in-depth talk. Even if you're not a Plasma Desktop user, it is some fascinating stuff then we're going to get into the week's news we've got picks and we've got feedback but no there's there's something a little different this week isn't there there is this week we are going to change up the format just a little bit the flow of the show everything's going to stay the same we're not going to audio only or anything like that but this week we're going to try a different layout and see if it works a little bit better for you the audience yeah and we'll go more into it in the uh, feedback section of the show uh, we'll jump into that because what, what, what we're trying to accomplish is get right into the stuff that you clicked on this episode to watch. And so right before we get there, I want to thank our first sponsor this week, and that's DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com, create an account, and use our promo code, here's the thing. It's all one word. It's lowercase. You squish it together like you're slurring it. You apply that to your brand new account. You get a $10 credit. And now you're cooking with gas because DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up your own cloud server on their wicked fast infrastructure. All SSDs, a crazy great UI like nobody else has ever done, data centers all over the world, and the API is so simple and straightforward that once you're ready to jump into that stuff, you're going to be managing your droplets like a 
Boost. We do it with an IRC bot in our chat room. It's so fun. DigitalOcean.com. Go over there. Also, check out the awesome documentation. Even if you're not ready to jump on board yet, you're just kind of checking them out, it's worth swinging by. They might be able to help you out with your Linux box on something. The pricing's nuts. You can go hourly, and for three cents an hour, two gigs of RAM, a two-core processor, 40 gigabyte SSD. They're all SSDs and three terabytes of transfer. The entire infrastructure runs on Linux, KVM for the virtualizer, SSDs for all the drives, and a 40 gigabit E connection into each hypervisor with data centers everywhere. Go over to DigitalOcean.com, use our promo code, here's the thing, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. So I was lucky, uh, thanks to uh, producer Michael arranging all of this, Big hat tip to him for really coming through. He was able to ping Jonathan Riddle while he was still at a cram event. They were doing like a sprint for KDE and Plasma desktop, and it was just coming off of Fostum. So the, all the all the gang was together already. So they said, while we're all here, let's just bang out a whole bunch of code for the Plasma desktop. And we had a chance to chat with them, and it, and it was about 9 p.m. in the evening in Germany, and they were still hacking away on, I think it was Friday. It is a big week, and in the past we've had Jonathan on to break down some big news, like when KDE Neon was announced. This week, Jonathan joins us, but there's so much to discuss, not just one man would do. Oh no, it's an entire room. It's a KDE gang. Hello, Jonathan and team. Hello, guys. Hi there. Good evening. We're coming live from Stuttgart in Germany here, where we've been doing the plasma sprint all week. This, uh, we just came from Potsdam previously in Belgium. This is awesome. It's about 9, what, 9 p.m. where you're at right now. You you guys are all still up hacking and uh, drinking beers. So I think that's that's just respectable right there. Good use of your time, full stop. <laughs> but you guys haven't just been sitting around drinking. You today just rolled out a brand new website. Check out the new KDE.org. It's looking really slick. Uh, so Ken here is our website person. Uh, All right. Our KDE website has maybe not kept up with, for example, the quality of KDE's desktop software. Uh, so Ken has pleasingly fixed it. Tell us about it. Uh, so yeah, the old website has been serving us for a very long time. It's been doing well, but times change. The web grows up, and occasionally we just have to move on. So. The big thing is just trying to modernize the website, getting it responsive, working on mobile. And that was a huge part of, uh, of just getting this together. And I also uh, want to comment that uh, Harold Sitter helped out quite a bit with this. Uh, if it weren't for him, uh, this would not have gone so quickly or smoothly getting this up. It looks really sharp. It's it's super nice to have everyone in one room, right? Or at least have a lot of you in one room so you can chat about things and work on things immediately, tweak this or get logged into that server as you need. So I, I, I heard the challenge was to make it reflect the quality of the desktop. How did you go about doing that? How do you try to represent the quality of the desktop in a website? Uh, we started with just a very small footprint. There's only about seven or eight pages that are actually new at this point. We're going to roll out a lot more later, but there was just a lot of focus on doing a few pages really, really right. Hmm. Uh, part of the quality thing is also just bringing the website out of the 90s uh, and into the current year. Sure. Yeah. And making sure it's a screenshot with a clock on it. <laughs> okay. Yes, I actually went through great lengths to put a scalable vector clock. Got to have the, the clock, web. huh? That's a big, that's a big thing. Got to check that off. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
it reflects the desktop and what we stand for. Okay, all right, I I like it. Uh, so while we're talking about the desktop, I, I noticed more. I think recently than. I don't know. I guess this is kind of a new initiative. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about it. And maybe, Jonathan, I'll start with you. You can punt it if you want. Uh, Docker images with Plasma software, the desktop software in it. Like, if I am not – maybe I'm not on Neon. Maybe I'm on Arch or I'm on Fedora. But there's now Docker images to get my hands on some of this new software to, I guess, open up to a whole new set of people to be able to use it. What's going on here? What's what's the what's the idea behind using Docker to distribute something like this? And how the hell can you even how can you even distribute a desktop inside a Docker container? Well, that's something I added as part of KDE Neon, and KDE Neon is just a project to get KDE software into the hands of users as quickly as possible. Um, and and we have the packages and we have the uh, installable ISOs, uh, but also you don't want to replace your operating system. Especially if you're a developer and you are building um, the the unstable branch, but you need to fix fix your bug in the stable branch as well. You need two installs of the same thing. Where you don't want to you don't want to have a, a virtual machine or or even a dual boot. That that takes ages. That's far too much fat. Um, so Docker is of course crazy popular on servers now, um, but I think it can be used for desktop stuff as well. Um, oh. So if you want to run uh, two different uh, two different versions of the same application, you can use the KDE Neon Docker images to just instant on, say, give me give me the stable branch and fix the, fix or test the, whatever you're working on there and give me the unstable branch and fix and test whatever you're working on there. So even if you don't run Neon as your operating system, you can easily test the latest packages and you can easily check your fix or you can ask somebody else to check your fix um, if they happen not to have it installed. So you're just uh, bypassing so- the packaging issue altogether and saying, we don't care, just... If you got Docker, you can try it out. You can test it. Yeah. That's great. Um, while we're kind of talking about future-ish kind of stuff when it comes to the desktop, why don't we transition into a uh, little Wayland? I know this is like one of the number one questions people have these days is, how long until Wayland by default? Wayland, 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 all the things. What do you guys, what do you guys think? <laughs> No, I think, I think we're ready to launch it. <laughs> no, so the, um, the current status of our Wayland support is um, we're almost there. There's still a couple of um, things that we're unhappy with. Um, we hope that towards the, the second half of the year, uh, we can get all these things nailed so we have a future parity. And then we'll have to look at the quality um, when we can start recommending to use Wayland by default. Um, so one of the things that we plan relatively shortly is to switch um, Neon Def Unstable uh, to Wayland. So to see, uh-huh. just to give it more exposure, uh, to get more testing, um, to get more feedback, um, and for us to better evaluate when it will be ready for, for prime time. Sure. How much does something like the potential KDE Slimbook play into testing something like Wayland support? Uh, this, so the Slimbook, which I'm afraid has been taken home by our colleague who has gone uh-huh. to Spain, uh, that's a beautiful little bit of hardware that we've been playing with all week. And that means that we can finally say, here's a, a definitive bit of hardware that we know our software will work with. Mm-hmm. Um, so especially if we're converting to, say, Wayland, where there's a major change, that this, it will, uh, there will be lots of different bits of the whole system that factor into it, hardware integration, um, and just what fonts you happen to have configured and so forth. 
Uh, it's really useful to have a, a single platform where we can go, this at least has to be perfect and everything else uh, has to be uh, functional, uh, but we know we can't test all the infinite number of possibilities that your PC can have. So the, so the single benchmark before we can even consider recommending it is perfect on that one device. And, and the KD Swimbook will be that device. Well, one other thing I think is very interesting is we've got a hardware partner who's willing to say Plasma is good enough that we think we can use Plasma to sell devices. And it's slim book right now. A few years from now, it will be Dell, Lenovo. They will be doing it. Yeah. Plasma yeah. by default. <laughs> yeah, Apple. <laughs> uh, hmm. But no, it really does do something for us if we have hardware de- um, vendors using us to sell their product. And that's what it really comes down to. And um, as to Wayland on the Slimbook, so the Slimbook ships um, Plasma's 5.8 LTS release, um, which is a long-term support release, but Wayland is excluded from the long-term support promise because it's simply not there yet. Mm. Um, The Slimbook does run the LTS release, so in order to get um, the latest Wayland code, which you really want because it contains all the fixes we're constantly applying, um, you can't run that uh, sensibly on the current version of the Slimbook, so you have to upgrade the software to the last uh, to the last version, and then you can test it. Um, that is not the idea of a finished uh, product, of course. Um, so as soon as we are confident enough that uh, that we can recommend well into end users, so as we feature complete, stable, tested, um, reliable, and you know, be a workhorse. Sure. Yeah, and then that can run on a product uh, like the Slimbook, but mm-hmm. um, Slimbook is pretty far away from from running our latest development code because we simply don't want to expose users to unfinished software. So, um, fair enough. Yeah, this is also why we're uh, why we're doing Wayland and X11 um, in parallel, so everybody can see if Wayland is good enough for them, and then switch. But we don't want to force users. Uh, to switch to unstable uh, software. So hmm. we don't want users to be testing um, the software. Users should be running it. People who want to test should be able to test it. So I... Just downloading uh, dev unstable of uh, Neon and... Oh, try oh, the distribution always use the Docker image. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've, uh, I've, I've noticed more and more people talking about the uh, the projects that you guys are working on uh, the slim book is getting some good attention uh, neon itself is getting a lot of attention the plasma desktop is getting a lot of attention is there are you seeing a large uptick in the adoption of neon uh, are you seeing a large user base assemble there or 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 is this something else happening it to me it honestly feels like neon starting to stand out as as um, I don't want to call it a, a, a competitive distribution, but at least a lot of a place, a lot of people have decided, hey, I can get a great usable desktop with the latest version of the Plasma desktop, and I know I'm going to get it reliably. And I think that seems to be, at least if you don't want to call it a distribution, it seems to be appealing to a lot of people. Are, what, what's the growth you see in there? For, for my part, I'd be, I'm really pleased at how the, how the, how the feedback has gone. Um, I run the Twitter account for KD Neon, and and it's just a real pleasure coming in every morning and seeing people going, I've been still KD Neon. It's amazing. Yeah, and, and I bet. Things that get posted to it all the time. 
Katie, of course, as a project, is entirely district independent and, and wants to work with everybody and, and anybody, uh, whoever wants to work with us. Um, but but I spend most of my time in the Kitty Neon project. Um, and one of the things that I've been doing at the sprint here is for the first time, we've been looking at the stats of what the installs are for Kitty Neon. Uh, so... Would you like to play a game, Chris? <laughs> yes, always. <laughs> so, how many installs of Kitty Neon do you guess we've had in the last six months? Ooh, in the last six months. Hmm. Uh, so, so, I'm going to say 25,000. 25,000. It's 100,000. Oh! So really? Um, in the last six months. Wow. Now, we don't want to make those stats too public because we don't quite know what that figure means in terms of, well, I install it every week and so that will count as a new install. But we, we don't know how many people that is and we've no benchmark for is that a lot or is that a little? We've no idea. We're certainly not taking over the world with KD Neon, um, but it's a significant dent into uh, just where I would go for a project that's a year old that makes me very happy. Yeah, and, yeah, and I think it also demonstrates a, well. there's a big desire for plasma desktop. I think that's the other thing is people want current plasma desktop. Hmm. Yeah. We, we split it down by country as well. Do you want to guess yes. what the top countries are that install KD Neon? Oh, oh, well, usually the U.S. is usually in the top somewhere. So I'm going to say the U.S., U.K., uh, Australia, Canada. So, interesting variant of free. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I got excited. What can I say? <laughs> well, tell me what it is. Very, very often, people get the impression that uh, KDE is most popular in Germany because that's where we are today and mm. where I love it started 20 years ago. Um, and, and indeed, that is true. The number one in Seoul is from Germany. Uh, but the number two install, as you say, which is almost equal, is the United States. And hmm. uh, the number three install was a surprise, which was Russia. Oh. And we, we don't see Russia as being too visible in the KDE community. There are there are contributors from there, uh, but it, it's not one of the major ones. Uh, but it turns out, it, it, at least as far as KDE Neon is concerned, it's one of our major install places. So maybe we should do some more effort to, to work with them. Yeah. Could uh, put Putin as a background one, option. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so then it was the UK and then Canada was the next one. Okay, so I, boy, I was, I was sort of, I did not see Russia coming. I did not see that. You got me there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've had that problem. So, all right, this is, uh, this is all very fascinating and uh, all well and good, but uh, what about the future, gentlemen? What about things like Internet of Things and uh, mobile devices? Is this still an area that uh, the... Uh, Plasma desktop and types uh, KDE software might find itself going after, or are you giving up on that stuff and focusing on something else? Tell me what's in the future, guys. Goodness, no. Uh, so, Bushan, show, show us your hardware that you've got. Sure, there. Sure. Uh, so, just this week's been fun sitting next to Bushan because every few hours he goes, hey, as he gets another part of the Nexus 5X. <laughs> oh, really? The 5X, huh? So he's been importing yeah. Plasma Mobile to so 5X. Do you want to tell us? Mm -hmm. It's booting now. But <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, booting now, so we. He's been trying to get uh, what, Bluetooth to working, and then phone calls from the SIM, and then the the all the, all the key yeah. integration. So the background for that is oh yeah, um, oh yeah. Our first our first device we got um, 
platform mobile running on is the uh, Google Nexus 5. Um, but given that that isn't um, sold as new devices anymore, we needed a new reference device that actually uh, that people can actually buy and um, and, get, uh, uh, and have uh, Plasma Mobile on. So, so the 5X? A, uh, a new device, but we were also working on, um, on slimming down the stack. So while previously uh, we, we built Plasma Mobile on top of Ubuntu Touch, with, which runs on top of a slimmed down um, Android, basically, mm-hmm. now we moved several layers in between. And um, we can uh, generate plasma mobile images that run directly on uh, on AOSP. So we we take the Android base because that has all the drivers that um, basically makes the hardware work, and we run uh, plasma on that. So we get much much quicker uh, updates from Android, and it makes it a lot easier for us to port plasma mobile to new devices. What's driving so the display? Relevance here. What drives the display in that in that setup there? Um, that's the uh, um, the Android graphics driver, and we use uh, LibHybris, huh. and on top of that, Wayland. So on, on mobile, we've been doing Wayland from the beginning. Interesting. And it's also a much, much easier use case since you don't have dynamic, uh, dynamically changing outputs. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have XWayland to support. You, yeah. It's a lot easier when you don't have to worry about legacy compatibility. Sure. And that's one of the good things about your mobile project is it's a complete opposite extreme of the most things we do it in the desktop, yet it's the same process. It's still Quinn running. It's still Plasma Shell running, just with a slightly different UI. And if we can go to your most extreme end with the same software and make something work, we, cu- we kind of feed in some of these changes, high DPI support, touch support, mm. into the laptops and all the devices that fit in the scale between a full-on desktop and a mobile, like ta- laptops with touchscreens, tablets, all kind of start to get covered because we're investigating, playing around with the most extreme difference. Right, that, yeah, that makes example, sense. Uh, for phone had a virtual keyboard support and it was later adopted for use case in uh, desktop and tablet, tablet devices or netbook devices. And... So is the approach... Yeah, and there are also various uh, valent features which originated from plasma mobile use cases for, a, huh. like, uh, the lock screen was... All, uh, in valent first, uh, lock screen was not really working initially, but huh. it was required on phone devices, and then it got ported to in valent. So the phone project gives... Uh, more push pushback yeah. to the Wayland efforts. That's that's fascinating. And so is the is the outlook on this project such that uh, there is there is there seems to be benefits alone just from attempting to do it that it's worth working on until a use ba- a user base or a particular client base props up for it. Because I, I definitely recognize the uh, when you push yourself to the technical ends and have to make things absolutely efficient and have to resolve those little edge cases, it makes everything better. Uh, but are you also hopeful that it may land in like a, a carrier deal one day? I mean, like we're talking obviously way down the road, but what is sort of the long-term goal here? Is it is it really to take on Android? Uh, yes, certainly. Um, we 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 realize that we are um, with a desktop. We have a um, very slick and finished uh, uh, product. Can always get better. 
Um, but with the phone, we're not quite there yet. Um, so it'll take a couple of years until it's really ready for the end user. Um, yet we've already seen careful um, interest from uh, companies that uh, want to build mobile phones with it, that want to uh, dis uh, disrupt the market, that are not happy with the, uh, with the current option. Um, at the same time, we've been kind of worried because there were other free operating systems uh, just in the last year. Um, we have been problems reconsidering, um, sometimes failing, sometimes plain abandoning uh, their base. Um, Firefox OS is gone. Ubuntu Touch doesn't seem to be doing really well, doesn't get the, uh, the upstream focus anymore. Um, so the market is definitely thinning, but someone has to provide a free alternative so so it's not just left to the the apples and google um so yeah we're still working on that and um by sticking to our guns we hope that at some point we get it so far that we can actually present it to the uh, to the user we'll be happy with it but yeah that'll that'll involve uh a, a companies that want to work with us uh, on that and that means from our side we need to get it to a point where um, where a company, a carrier, or a mobile phone uh, producer says, well, yeah, this is actually close enough to a usable uh, product for us that we um, can ship without, within the time frame that we have um, to get it to the market. I would be excited, um, honestly, as a user, if I have Nexus devices, I would if, if just over the next few years, images consistently came out for devices I can put my, get my hands on, uh, I might just choose to run it as a privacy security conscious type person who may, might not be comfortable running Android. So I say good on it, guys. I'm glad you're willing to do that. And it's interesting to hear all the extra little things you win and learn by by putting it on those devices. Do you want to also take a moment and talk about Internet of Things? Because I, I saw you mention a couple of devices, and I'm wondering, how does Plasma fit with the Internet of Things? Is there room for, like, a, um, is it a whole GUI type application suite? What are we talking about? Well, it depends a little. Um, so um, I have brought an Odroid, which is a slightly um, beefed up, um, but it's, it's one of these, these small pocket computers. And um, we have Plasma running on it, and we, we tried our best to slim it down um, to make it as memory efficient as, and, and fast as possible, mostly due to configurations, but there were also quite some, uh, quite some performance improvements. Hmm. Um, fed into uh, into Plasma uh, by that. Um, we haven't really figured out um, where we want to go with that. Um, it does certainly give us performance benefits, and we do have that on the radar, but we need to, um, to find where we can add the most value uh, to the Internet of Things market because we don't want to contribute to the Internet of crap. Um, we want to solve real problems and contribute something. Like, uh, making something sure my screen, like making sure my refrigerator has a screen on it. Mm. Something we need. <laughs> if it's going to happen, it better run Linux and Plasma. That's the way to look at it. Because do we need Absolutely. it? Maybe not. Will it happen? It already has. So <laughs> that's a very good point. Uh, I love that. I think that's probably a really good a really good way to look at it too. It's like it's inevitable to a degree. Uh, and I won't even mention the fact that my co-host is actually one of those people that owns a fridge with a screen in it. I'm not not even going to go there. <laughs> kind of. We're not. Yeah, yeah. Kind of related to the Internet of Things, though. What about uh, future work with uh, these these 
assistants that are taking off. Uh, I know everybody thinks of the Echo and the Google Home, but you know what about stuff like Mycroft and, and other open source initiatives? Uh, any thoughts on integrating that into the desktop? Oh yeah. Um, incidentally, we uh, just had a collective phone call with Mycroft. Um, we have been doing App Plus One to uh, to control various aspects of the desktop um, functionality uh, through voice. And we're certainly um, looking into how we can improve that, how we can further integrate uh, these things, um, how we can make that really useful. So, yeah, we're working on that as well. Hmm. Um, there is a video showing the Microsoft Plasmoid uh, in action in a prototype. Um, maybe we can add the link some, uh, in, in some way. At the bottom of the screen now. Right, because that's how it works just like that. (laughs) I'll go look for it, though. Interesting. So it could be coming down the road. Maybe I could, like I could, I could, well, I'll be able to just speak to my Plasma desktop. Um, while we're talking about future Plasma desktop things, I do have a couple other questions for you guys. I've, I've recently switched back to the Plasma desktop right about, right about 5.8 and right, really loving 5.9. Geez, just such a, such a fantastic release. And the only thing I wish was slightly better would be my browser integration. Um, I'm really pointing the finger at Chrome. It just, it feels a little awkward. Firefox is a bit better. What do you guys think about future browser integration? Yeah, yeah so, so that's actually one thing that I've been working on over the past couple of weeks is a Plasma browser integration, which is basically an extension for your browser, be it Firefox, Chrome, Opera, like all the major ones we're planning to support. And that one will then um, basically communicate with your Plasma desktop through some witchcraft mechanisms and then basically um, provide some better desktop integration. For example, um, we have a working prototype actually which will um, export when you download files so they actually show up in Plasma's notification area. Hmm. And then we have um, other things like you can right-click on a link and then it offers like, you know, open a new tab. You can also send it to your phone and then through KD Connect it will show up there. Because that's one thing I really like. I can open, like, read something on my phone and then send it to my computer and continue reading there. Yeah, absolutely. Just working the other way around. So that is something that we can finally do with this. And then, yeah, we can. We made a huge list of, like, 30 crazy ideas that we plan to do, like Empress integration, for example. Like, most people don't use like a dedicated music player anymore, right? So they just use whatever proprietary web service out there there is. And so with this um, with this extension, we can export them through Empress and then we get all the controls like it were a uh, local application. If you get a phone call through KD Connect, it will pause your whatever Spotify browser tab if you're not running the application. And so that's really something that we want to push forward. Hmm. Yeah, I really have to say one of my favorite, favorite features in 5.9 is being able to right-click on the task um, entry and mute, like I, like you like where it shows you where the sound is, like it does for browser tabs. For somebody who's on air and sometimes has random things make sound on his computer, that is one of the <laughs> most useful features that I've had my desktop environment get in years. So it makes me wonder, is it too good to be true? We're at 5.9. Is everything about to get thrown out when 6.0 launches? Is it, are we all in for it all over again? What's going on next, guys? That's next week, right? <laughs> <laughs> we actually started breaking everything up. Good, good, um, good. Um, no, the good news uh, is, and 
Um, we actually looked at that uh, last summer during uh, during Academy and KubeCon. Um, Qt6 is at least five years, uh, four or five years down the road from now. Um, so we'll, we are at a pretty stable point right now, but uh, we're not planning to, to do a major part. Uh, so in the next years, we'll keep improving on the things that we have. We make it more performant, we make it more stable. Uh, we'll be able to add in more features that our users ask for. And at the same time, uh, we'll be working more on, uh, on other platforms uh, such as the mobile, uh, the mobile device Bushan has been talking about. So um, there's no no major breakage, no rewrites on the horizon. Where um, we're even able to get fairly big architectural changes like our Wayland support uh, into Plasma in a way that doesn't break the user experience. That is really that is really good to hear. I love that. Sounds like I made a, a good choice. So, so I'm I'm really I'm really pumped up about all this stuff. Is there anything else you guys want to share with the audience before we uh, wrap it up for the evening? Well, I'd like to highlight that the KDE is a lot more than the desktop these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twenty years ago, of course, KDE was a desktop, and and now the, this is the Plasma desktop team. But one of the reasons why we created that new brand of Plasma uh, was to was to show the KDE is an awful lot more. Uh, of course, there's the suite of applications um, and, and the means of distributing the stuff like KDE Store, and, but there's, there's um, whole new projects like Wiki2Learn, which is just an academic textbook wiki. Um, oh. And what makes it common, of course, is that we're all common communities. So if you're a member of the community, you can commit and, and contribute immediately to all the different projects. Um, so KDE is quite an umbrella project now, and for anybody else who wants to uh, wants to work with free software, and if, if it's an end user product, then you're you're very welcome to join the KDE community and and make your project one of ours. Awesome, and I will link to uh, Wiki to Learn too. This looks this looks really great. Uh, free collaborative access to tech textbooks, which is uh, boy, isn't that an awesome service? Yeah, that's awesome. They've had not a lot of success there in, in getting multiple languages to work uh, to create to create academic textbooks, and they've got really close integration with universities uh, in in Italy, in in Spain, in England, and and just at Fosdem, Rufi was there talking to people in Greece and other places. So he's going to be growing that a lot. Heck of an initiative. I will have that linked in the show notes as well. Guys, thanks so much for all of the hard work. Thanks for coming on the show, and keep it up. I look forward to chatting soon. This episode is brought to you by Ting. Go to last.ting.com. Last.ting.com to support the show. But better than that, get yourself $25 off of one of Ting's great devices. Or if you bring a compatible device, check their BYOD page, you'll get $25 in service credit. You know, Ting has CDMA and GSM, so there's a pretty good chance you can bring a device. And then they have a great range of devices. Check this stuff out. They have the SIM cards here for 9 bucks. They have feature phones for as low as 45 bucks. And if there's not something here that you want, Ting has relaunched their personal shopper service too, which is basically, hey, Ting, solve my problem. I love that. Uh, you could also be crazy like Noah and just walk into a Best Buy. Like, you did that literally this morning. I did that right before I got onto the what, air. So what? My, what? Phone, my phone decided to die. I unplugged it from the charger, and I have all these little lines on the screen, which, I, you know, 
I didn't like if, most people like they would take it into their cell phone shop and they would want to troubleshoot. Like we all know what that means, right? Like something has gone hokey with the display. No point in troubleshooting. Yeah. Go get a phone. So the thing about Ting is like, and I get this all the time when I go to conferences and stuff, people say, well, I would switch to Ting, but what do I do if my phone breaks or where do I buy phones or whatever? Uh, you know, if you need to buy one in, in a rush and the thing is Best Buy and actually AT&T also, they, they will sell you an unlocked phone, an unlocked GSM phone that works flawlessly on Ting. So I bought my, I, uh, and B&H does it too, if you want to order them online, but I walked into Best Buy today and uh, picked up a, uh, a, uh, it's a Motorola something or other. Uh, oh yeah, nice. 150, 150 Motorola's bucks, not a bad bucks. way to go if you're going to do a little uh, quickie phone. Yeah, and I'll I'll keep it as a as a spare uh, as a spare Can phone. Can I ask you something? And, yeah, go for it. Are you going to get a Pixel? I'm thinking about it. They have the Pixel at Best Buy. Huh, I would I really like. I would really like to hear your opinion of the Pixel. I would really like. I, so here's 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 what drove me away from the Pixel today. One is oh. Best Buy. Oh, you thought about team. it today? Oh, okay. I did. I was looking at it. Here's the thing. Best Buy. Yeah, y'all need to get somebody on your sales team because this is the second time I've gone in wanting to buy something and I can't get something out of your goofy cabinet, and so I just left. Oh the, yeah. Uh, but the, uh, the the thing about the Pixel is, it looks like the way that it that it implements Android is totally different. Despite what? being what? Android, what? And, what? What? Yeah, yeah. So like, when I, <laughs> so like, here's the that thing. The I last pick, thing I expected you to say. <laughs> so I pick up the phone and I expect to have. Here's what I expect from Android. I expect to have a menu button at the bottom, and then it pops up the the menu, and then I expect to have icons on the screen. And the Pixel did not work that way. Although it would have worked flawlessly with my Ting Sim, I could just put my Ting Sim. What in do you had a house? Icon. Okay, boy, this 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 perplexes me. You mean because it didn't have icons on the screen? It has this launch bar that, down here. Yeah, but the launch bar, it like it slides things up and down though. It doesn't like. I just want to push a menu button and I want my menu to appear. Well, that's like, the new Android launcher, my friend. That is the new it launcher. It's not like that on my phone. Like, I don't because you have a Samsung. Phone. But I have the latest version of Android. Oh, oh, you mean on the Moto? Uh, well, no, no, no. I'm talking about on the Pixel. Oh, yeah, but uh, Samsung, you know, they ship their own UI. Yeah. I really think – see, I think what you got to do is you got to think about making – at some point, man, what you got to do is make a cold, clean break to the Google Pure experience because that's, that's Google Prime, right? That's Android Prime. That's why I say Ting Network right now, if I was going to Ting and I wanted to be budget conscious, Nexus yeah. 5X on Ting, hands down, because you could do CDMA or GSM. You still get yeah. the monthly updates. You get the pure Google experience. But then if you can afford to go a little nicer, Pixel seems like a solid way to go for sure. But at some point, you're just going to have to make the clean break and get off the Samsung Teat and switch over to the pure yeah. Android Prime experience. Yeah. Well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. And it's going to happen on Ting. Last.ting.com. That's where you go to save. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. This might almost be a PSA since we have a pretty large Arch user base in the audience. Probably not a huge surprise to all of you, but Arch is officially pulling the plug on the 32-bit version. Now, it's going to be not as painful as it sounds. Uh, the decision means that February's ISOs will be the last that still have 32-bit ISOs. So you can still grab those. And then the announcement goes on to say that I, uh, I, um, I-686 installs will continue to receive upgrade packages for a nine-month depreciation period. Starting in November 2017, I-686 will effectively be unsupported. This is happening more and more. But the reason why I found myself sort of interested in this is – just last week when we were looking at the low-budget Linux computers, I had to mm-hmm. kind of disqualify some 32-bit candidates specifically because this is starting to happen more and more. So mm-hmm. while most of us are, yeah, 64-bit, of course, has been around forever, there are still some folks on the lower end 
especially in the education market, that are on 32-bit. Do you think this could be an issue or – Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. Even for the Arch user base, like I'm finding, I'm making, I'm finding it hard to to feel like this is a big problem for the Arch user base. But I think that in general, yeah, on a general sense, I think that we need to have a one or two distros that are there to support older hardware. I think that it's fine if the majority of the big players drop 32 bit support and focus primarily on 64 bit support. But I mean, the reality is that not just necessarily. It, that old of a machine it's not wasn't that long ago that we had machines that had less than four gigs of ram in which case you don't really get a whole lot of benefit of having 64-bit distro um and so there's a lot of people that are still using and i have 32-bit machines all over the place the one that's sitting right in front of me is a 32-bit yeah. machine yeah so, oh really oh that's right yeah. mm-hmm. huh so I, i'd be really kind of sad to see to see a whole lot of them jump ship while we're on the story a couple of a couple of months ago, I hosted an episode of something, and I had mentioned that as I was making my switch to Arch, I had documented just kind of like little quick things, like these are the the commands that I go to, you know, to to get all these things. And I got I don't know how many emails from people going, "How do you? Can I get a copy of that? Can I get a copy of that? Can I get a copy of that?" And I've always meant to come back and just address it head on and say, "Yes, absolutely, I'd be more than willing to share it with you." And here it is. And you know, you ever think about something, then you forget. It happened to me. So. Right now, as we did the story, I went and pulled up that, and I'm going to drop a link in the show notes right under this particular story. And so if you're okay. interested in that that quick guide, there it's So these, just to clarify, these are like your favorite or handy go-to Arch commands since you've switched yes. to Arch? Okay. Well, I kind of want, I want that list too. Yeah, put it in the show notes. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, interesting. And, you know, like the chat room saying, there'll be distros like Gen 2 and whatnot that you'll probably always be able to build for 32-bit systems. The article goes on to talk about other uh, distributions as well. You know, one quick follow-up, Noah, not that this really matters, but uh, Happy Me made me think about it in the chat room. One thing you could do with your launcher problem is you could normalize it by by switching to a third party launcher altogether. Uh, yeah, like Nova yeah, launcher. Like. Yeah, and then you could just whatever phone you get, a, you know, a, a quick cheap Moto or another Samsung or a Pixel phone, you install Nova launcher, and it's always the same. That's something you. Know, you- that- that very much follows my Walmart Linux user style of everything, right? Not I only go that, to whatever the lowest common denominator, that so that I can always use it. Not only that, but it also sort of follows our philosophy of the most successful way to switch a Linux user is to first put them on the most all of the all of the apps you can on the Windows desktop. So LibreOffice, Firefox, myself. yeah, it's essentially doing the same thing. It makes, I, yeah, I don't know. That was when I saw Happy Me mention that in the chat room. I, I thought that would be worth. Just mentioning. Also, I just want to say, if you'd like to join us live, you can at jblive.tv. We do this show live on Sundays at noon Pacific. Now, the thing is, the reason why I'm mentioning this sort of midway in the show is because I want more people to know we will not be live for a little bit. We are experimenting with this new format at the same time we are also prepping for some events and some travel is happening. So there's a lot going on. So we will not be live for the next couple of weeks, but we will have new episodes for you each week week but if you'd like to join us live when we get back in like two to three weeks just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar and see when the live times are at wanted to mention that now before we forget uh all right so our last story for this week is because this is sort of a big story and uh, we have we have uh, next week's episode we'll get other stories that didn't quite fit uh the elementary project is doing something that i think is super important for linux desktop it comes back to i think both noah and i share a philosophy and correct me if i'm wrong noah 
uh, where one of the reasons we like to see better and more desktop applications for Linux is because it's sort of a chicken and egg. When you get better and more applications, you get more users. When the when the platform gets more users, it gets more recognition from the industry. And once it has more industry weight, we're capable of accomplishing a lot more. And we've all witnessed this as Linux has gotten more and more weight in different markets. Now even companies like Microsoft bend to Linux. This is just it's just what they have to do to make to just to be competitive. Imagine if we could get to a point even close to that on the desktop or laptop side. And I think, as, I think a healthy software ecosystem for Linux is a key part of achieving that. And this is one of the reasons I've always followed the elementary OS project with some intrigue because they have something that's really polished. And they have something that we've talked about in the last interview we did with them. So go back and check that. But they have something that makes it very clear for developers how to get started to make applications for elementary OS desktop, how to make it look like it fits in. So there is actually like a structured path for developers when they're out there looking like, how would I want to do this? There is very clear online documentation. Then there's actual sample code. There's dev kit environments they can install. It's very clear. This, so this is something that trips developers up a lot. I hear about this all the time on Coda Radio. When they're coming over to Linux, they don't even know how to start. First, they have to learn what packaging is and package management is. Then they have to figure out what the user's pre- preferences are on how packages are dealt with. Think about that for a second when you're coming into a new platform for the first time. Then they have to figure out what language they should use, which toolkit they should use, which distributions they should try to be in. Like all of these things are extremely hard for newbies. And so when you, as a you as a like a project like Elementary OS or a desktop or a platform, come along and say, "Here's the path you follow." It actually enables an entirely new wave of developers to come on. Of course, the big piece that's been missing this entire time has been monetization. It's a topic we've followed a lot on this show. And so Elementary OS is stepping up their app center to include, if this fundraiser is successful, a pay-what-you-want software store for open-source software. So taking the humble indie bundle philosophy – and applying it to their app store at all, which includes not paying for anything or maybe paying five, ten dollars. I'll let uh, Daniel, uh, the founder of Elementary OS, introduce a little bit of his video here. Elementary was founded in 2007 by a small group of passionate volunteers that wanted to make a better open source software system. We believe in the unique combination of open source, which allows people to learn and collaborate, with top notch UX design, which puts people and their needs first. Over the past few years, we've built out a great open source operating system that's been downloaded millions of times by people coming from closed source platforms. But to be a truly useful, productive, and fun environment, we need a great ecosystem of apps. And our competitors rely on web apps to make up... I want to stop right there because that's a great point. And before we go any further, I wanted to say that... uh Daniel also stopped by the show on Friday, and we had a chance to talk and work out some of these details. So what you hear in the video, if it's raised questions, stand by for just a moment because they're probably about to be answered. Hey, how's it going, Chris? It's going great, and I'm really excited about this concept you guys have launched because this is something that I've followed for a long time now. And I want to kind of wrap my head around what it is you guys are trying to pull off. So a pay-for-what-you-use app store, that sounds crazy. Is this, is this designed to get, like, really big apps in there, like, uh, like uh, big commercial applications? Is that what this is all about, Daniel? Uh, no, we're mostly focused on uh, independent open-source software developers. So our kind of perspective is that um, when you're looking at all the really successful new platforms that have come out uh, – they focused on getting native apps and they focused on getting new apps. And uh, we think that people 
may, you know, it, it might be easier for people to switch by having the cross-platform apps that they're familiar with, but people don't switch because of that. They need the killer apps to switch. And so we want we want to have the independent open source apps be the killer apps that convince people to switch. So this is really about creating an app store that just gives open source developers uh, a way to make a little money from what they're releasing and an incentive really also to target perhaps the uh, elementary desktop. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know you've talked about on the show before that, um, you know, app availability is is key, right? And and when you're evaluating a new platform, if you can't get uh, your favorite apps in the version that you need, that, you know, it kills your possibility to stay on that platform. So this solves a huge pain point uh, for people uh, to hopefully migrate to us. So what is the revenue split? I imagine there must be some split taking place because you have yourself as the organizer, then you have a payment processor, and then, of course, the developers. So how does that all break down? Right. So uh, we're trying to stick to the industry standard, which is 70-30. Um, but we do have, uh, at the low end, we're doing a, a minimum of 50%, or I'm sorry, a minimum of 50 cents uh, charge. Uh, so that way, if because uh, it's pay what you want, right? So if someone charges a dollar, we could still facilitate the dollar payments, um, but it costs us more than 30 cents to process the charge. Yeah, so we want to yeah. make sure that we can offer that low price point for users because uh, we feel like that, um, you know, having a 2 or $3 minimum uh, is going to have less payments uh, come through, but uh, we want to make sure that we're doing this in a way that's that's fair to developers, and we want to give them uh, the biggest and fairest cut that we possibly can. Hmm. I, I I've seen some I've seen some mock mockups of the uh, pay what you want UI too, and it, that that looks really straightforward. In fact, one of the things I'm really kind of hoping about this is that the whole process might be more straightforward. And so it sounds like I, I want to get to the end user experience, but before we go too far, I I want to talk about the developer experience because it sounds like the process for a developer is pretty straightforward. You need a GitHub account and a few other things. What, if I'm looking to publish an app, what kind of things do I have to prepare for? Uh, pretty much all you need is uh, you need a GitHub account so that you can host your app, and you need a Stripe account so that you can accept payments. And then uh, you OAuth both of these things in the App Center dashboard. And on the dashboard, uh, you select which applications you want to publish, and then you just uh, click the little publish button, and we'll run a bunch of automated tests on it and make sure it's ready to ship. If we find any issues, uh, we'll actually file them as GitHub issues with documentation and let you know what went wrong and how to fix it. And uh, then you just, um, after fixing it, make a new release and go back to the dashboard and, and hit publish again and, until you're in the store. And then on the back end, are, are, you, are you packaging up an apt uh, or a dev file? What's happening on the back end package management wise? Yeah, right now we're still, uh, we're using apt. Uh, so we're using aptly is actually okay. the name of the repository management software. So it's still dev on the back end, but... Um, you know, because like these new package formats are popping up, right? Like uh, Snap and Flatpak, we know that uh, we're not going to be on uh, Deb forever. So we've kind of built it in a future-proof way, where the packaging is not really a core part of the dashboard. It doesn't provide like core features, and and swapping that out won't detract from the experience or anything like that. There'll be an easy transition when we get there. So uh, I guess what I'm trying to ask though is, uh, <clears throat> does a developer not have to package up a Deb file? 
Uh, at the moment, yeah, you do still need okay. to provide your Debian packaging. Could that, so in the future, I guess I why, where I'm going with this is I know one of the number one questions that's going to come into the show is, well, what about other distros? What about running on Ubuntu Mate or what about running it on Ubuntu proper or Arch or Fedora? It, so it's, that's, that sounds like a really multiple faceted problem. Uh, but I, I guess I wanted to, let's start with uh, how technically capable and likely is that to ever happen with something like this? Uh, it's probably not something that we're going to develop, but uh, potentially uh, we've developed it in such a way. And the, the whole back end is open source. So potentially other people, if they wanted to, could come in and build out uh, publishing back ends for different package formats. Okay. If that's something that they wanted to do. Right. Okay. Um, as far as the payment stuff, uh, I'm not 100% positive how the API interacts there because it's something we're still building. Um, so, like having, because we're talking about now having third party clients, right? Because we have to be able to mm-hmm. um, figure out these, you know, which repo are we tying to and stuff like that. So, I think that, I mean, I think that if you're running on another distro, what you would end up doing is you'd have to run your own instance of um, an App Center dashboard fork kind of thing. And mm-hmm. then you could process all your own payments and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But that's something that people could totally do, um, you know, and, and we're happy to have them to uh, take advantage of, of the work that we've done to be able to provide that service for other distros. That'd be really awesome. Is this uh, in that context, is this is this really about is this revenue generation for the project long term or is this about filling out an ecosystem that sort of gives developers a path because one of the things I've noticed about your project, the, the 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 core of this question is, is you've guys you guys have focused on creating templates and creating obvious routes from the website to the tools that are available for the distribution to create applications. If I start researching how I want to develop an application and I want to target elementary OS, there's very clear paths for me to follow to get to a, a, an end product that looks like it belongs on the desktop as a cohesive piece of software. Is do you feel like this is the next step in getting more of those applications on? Is this like, is this going to be what it is that you think will will give people the final thing to click it and go? I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna tip the scales. I'm gonna, de- I'm gonna develop for elementary OS. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a community of people right now that are developing apps for elementary OS, but once they get done with their app, then they're kind of stuck. They're like, uh, how do I distribute it now? And, uh, you know, PPAs are a mess and uh, distributing dev files doesn't work that great uh, from the web. And they don't have a uh, really clear way to monetize their app. So it's between, you know, donations or advertisements, which might not work because if you have a third party website, uh, like a blog, uh, you know, that's recommending your app, they might not even link to your website. They might give out, you know, the terminal commands to install from the PPA. Mm-hmm. So. You know, the developers have a big problem of distributing their app and how do they fund the development. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, uh, you know, users are frustrated because they don't want to have to go all around the place and try to figure out, you know, how to install apps. And it's not exactly easy for them to do. So this kind of like brings the two together and and says, you know, developers, do you want to build awesome apps for elementary OS? You want to make sure that your development gets funded, then you can go through this channel and we'll make sure that we get your apps directly in front of users and help them find your apps and and give them an easy way to support you. Hmm. So uh, as now from the from the end user perspective, I'm imagining this is going to be like a updated version of the App Center application. I mean, this is probably going to have to be a, a pretty big update on that end. So this is 
probably something that end users wouldn't see land for a while, right? Well, that's the goal of the sprint is uh, so that we can put all the pieces together. And uh, it's tentatively scheduled for uh, March 15th through the 20th. So we'll be okay. working um, through that time. We have prototypes for a lot of the different parts and pieces. Okay, good. So, uh, I, you know, we prototyped out uh, a bunch of the UI for the pay what you want widget. And, you know, what you see right there in, in the fundraiser is actually a screenshot. It's not a mock-up. Right. So that's a screenshot of our, our prototype. Um, and we have uh, another um, prototype of uh, what the payments UI looks like for entering credit cards and things like that. So we have some prototypes of different p- parts and pieces. Uh, we have some designs we've been playing with. Uh, we have little bits and pieces of API uh, for how we want to display the home page and be able to pull um, things uh, like um, – uh, you know, we have basic analytics in place to get like our uh, top downloaded apps for the day and stuff like that. So hmm. we've got we've got little parts and pieces. And, and the goal of uh, this fundraiser and the sprint is to get our team all together in a room for a whole week uh, so that we can put all the pieces together into a cohesive product. And we're hoping um, to push out the initial version of the App Center with uh, pay what you want and have developers publishing in it by the end of like April. Wow. Okay. Faster than I expected. I, I, I like that you are doing this a lot. It seems like, well, not a lot, but it seems like this is something that uh, is becoming a trend. You guys get the sort of pre-planning done, the concept stuff figured out, some of the some of the early code written, and then once you really think you have something, you, you then come to the community and say, if you're willing to fund us, we'll put everybody in one room and we'll actually bang this thing out. And if I recall, that happened just before the last elementary OS release, too, and obviously we saw where that, that led to some, some great stuff. So this is a great formula that I think you guys are landing on. And uh, I don't know, Daniel, can you just talk about that a little bit from a project standpoint about why you guys feel like it's important? Why not just take all this money you're raising and every dollar goes to uh, translates to an hour of somebody's time? Is that maybe not the most effective way to do it? Or do you? Or is there other benefits? Can you talk a little bit about this approach? Because it's something that seems like Elementary OS is doing more and more of. Yeah, I mean, definitely... Um you know, when we when we first started out doing the project, um, we did the thing of kind of um, publicizing everything a little bit too early, and we'd often talk about stuff that we didn't end up getting to complete. Uh, and so we saw, you know, that people would get kind of disappointed about, mm. oh, they didn't actually get to build that and stuff like that. So um, that's kind of led us to be a little bit more plan oriented and and go, you know, let's let's make sure if we publishize something that we're actually to be able to follow through on it. Um, but uh, I think that the the idea of doing these kind of fundraisers is that we, we want to have a clear goal and we want to have a clear focus so that when people come in and they give us money, they know exactly what they're spending it on. Um, we don't want to we don't want to say, hey, you know, uh, we're just going to get together some money to do like whatever we feel like <laughs> and then people, you know, nobody's going to want to fund that. So so we want to let people know, um, you know, this is the direct path uh, where we want to do this exact thing. Uh, this is how much it's going to cost us to do that exact thing. And if you believe in that and you want that product, then, then we would love your help to fund it. Yeah, in fact, I'm, you know, even though I, uh, my personal computer isn't running elementary OS every day, my, but my son's is, and I just think that this is, but this is so worth it in general that I'm, I'm going to back it because I, what I, what I would like to see out of it is even if it's a, <clears throat> even if this, even if as successful it ever gets as, hey, if I decide to publish an application on elementary OS, I might make a couple of bucks. Even if it, and it just gets more people talking about that, I think it's going to be a success. But really what it could do is it could end up sort of showing a model that might be 
replicable, and especially if certain components of what you're doing are open source already. What, I, what I'm thinking of specifically is like the Ubuntu Mate software boutique. Uh, I would love when I'm when I'm choosing to install an application there to be able to send a buck or two to one of those developers. I would love to see this take off in a wider range across multiple distributions, even if it's not the exact line-for-line code that you guys create. Somebody kicking off the whole thing where you bring together a dashboard, um, a clear development path, an app center to distribute it, and you know a, a respectable-sized user base, which is also a pretty important component, which you guys have. Uh, even, if, even if it's just only successful in that context, it's still going to be a big win, I think. So I, I really encourage people to try to support it if they can. It's up on Indiegogo for uh, a month left, it looks like. And they're they're at forty percent right now of the goal. I bet we could kick that over a few, a few. Just kick it over a few. Just kick <laughs> it over a few. So am I going to have to create like a user account, like an elementary OS user account, to install apps on my elementary OS desktop, or how's that all going to work? Am I am I going to end up having like a new elementary OS login? Uh, for the moment, no. Um, right now, the way we're we're starting it out is we're we're not storing any kind of private information or anything like that. Um, you know, our goal from the beginning of designing this product has been uh, how can we do and store as little as possible on our servers. Uh, <laughs> Good for the call. Dashboard, <laughs> yeah. For for the dashboard on the developer side, um, GitHub is the UI. The dashboard just exists to put it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you you still do all your development there. We give all your feedback there. Uh, you still host your code there. Um, so you know, the dashboard just kind of pulls that in. And on the on the payment side, uh, it's all through Stripe and, and Stripe Connect, and and we don't store any kind of information whatsoever. Um, it uses uh, you know Stripe charge tokens. Uh, so so we don't. We're not planning um, for the initial release to have any kind of any kind of user accounts, hmm. and it really plays well into uh, pay what you want because even if you go and you pay for an app, and let's say you get a different computer, um, it's pay what you want. So you don't have to uh, be like, oh well, I already paid for this app, but I don't want to pay again. You right. can just not pay again. Right? Yeah, I don't have to worry about reclaiming my purchases as it as it were. Okay, so aside from the other distributions question, Daniel, I got to imagine one of the number one questions you'll be getting. Probably the number two question is, could you in any way support trial software in the sense where I download it, I install it, I like it, and sort of like where I would go back to leave a review or whatever in, you know, in, in App Store parlance, I could also at that point in time choose to donate then without having to re-download or repurchase it. Like, could the UI facilitate me paying for something later on? Yeah, we've actually had a lot of people uh, ask about that. It seems to be a really popular option. So it's something that we definitely want to discuss at the Sprint. Uh, we've had mock-ups in the past of an idea of um, you know different kinds of ways that we can we could pop up a reminder and, and say mm. you know if you have if you happen to download uh, and you didn't pay at that time, uh, then maybe you can set a reminder or we'll just throw up a little notification or something you know and make sure make sure we only do it when we know you're using the app. Uh, because, you know, we can do that locally, right? That doesn't require any remote data because we can use things like Zeitgeist on your machine. Um, so we're not, you know, we're not looking at what you're doing, but you can, you know, kind of introspect uh, on your own computer. And uh, then it can say, hey, you know, it, it seems like you enjoy using this app. Would you like to maybe, you know, kick in a couple bucks or whatever? And then, you know, never bug them again, obviously. Mm-hmm. But uh, it seems like that's something that people are interested in. The idea of they want to try the app and, and see what it's like first. And then and then maybe they just need a little nudge to go, oh, yeah, yeah I, I, I would like to support this. Yeah. I, okay. So I think really my, my, my last question that I think really jumps out at me about about the whole about the whole thing is uh, what about down the road? I know this is hard to say at this point, but what about down the road? Uh, maybe I'm 
maybe I'm I'm code weavers and I want to put crossover office in front of elementary OS users. Is there going to be a capacity support or is there going to be at least some discussion at some point supporting commercial closed source applications where there is some minimum you have to pay? Um, I think that's two questions. Okay. <laughs> um, first question is, um, do we support closed source apps, right? And out of the gate, our goal is not to support closed source apps. Um, and we only support uh, GitHub uh, repositories for the mm-hmm. very first version. So in the future, um, we might consider uh, allowing private repositories, uh, repositories um, from uh your own private server or from something like GitHub or something like that. We, or I'm sorry, GitLab. Hmm. Uh, so we've talked about the possibility of, do we want to allow private uh, servers, closed source apps? And that seems like an eventuality that uh, we may just have to come to terms with. Um, but on the payment side, uh, we have no plan whatsoever to ever enforce any kind of price floors. Okay. And um, it not only philosophically, uh, but also from a technical standpoint, to try to do that um, requires developing like authentication mechanisms. And now we have to uh, store, you know, what things you've purchased, mm-hmm. right? So that we can we can make sure that you redeem your. And purchases. then there's like that tricky: do we want to roll out DRM? Because there's no DRM in the system now. And exactly. Yeah. So it starts to get. It's it starts to get complicated and it starts to get adversarial and and we've decided that we just don't want to get into that we're not going to try to fight our users um you know our philosophy is that we're building this around open source apps where you can get the source anyway for free if you want right, to right so um yeah so we're, we're we're doing it as a pay what you want purely and if what you want to pay is zero we're not going to fight you on that that's you know Users are going to get the apps if they want them, whether, mm-hmm. whether we put whatever kind of system that we could possibly develop. They're, they're going to get what they want to get, you know. Yeah, very true. And really, uh, I like, I like uh, also assuming that there are some users that are willing to pay for something that they find really valuable, too. And the system accommodates that, too. Daniel, is there anything else you want to touch on before we go? Yeah, uh, I just want to um, remind everybody that it, it is totally open source. So if you want to get involved, um, the App Center dashboard is up right now as a public repository. Oh, cool. At, uh, yeah, so you can go to uh, github.com forward slash elementary forward slash Houston is the code name. And um, and also just uh, let everybody know that if you if you decide to back our Indiegogo, that uh, every, every amount matters. Uh, one dollar adds up really fast, so don't feel like um, you have to match. You know some of the bigger donors. I know some people are, are throwing money around, but uh, you know if, if you just have a dollar and you just think the idea is cool, that you know you're important too, and we really appreciate your support. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have it linked in the show notes. It's on Indiegogo, and uh, definitely recommend you guys check it out. Daniel, keep up the great work, and thanks for coming on the show. This is the part of the show we are sticking the picks, and we've got some good ones this week. And I know you've been waiting for that runs Linux pick, so let's thank Linux Academy for sponsoring this episode. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and sign up for a free seven-day trial. And check out the Linux Academy platform, a platform for learning more about Linux. With self-paced, in-depth video courses on every Linux, cloud, and DevOps topic, hands-on, scenario-based labs give you experience they have real human beings that will help you out. They have a community stack full of Jupyter Broadcasting members. They're adding new content all the time. 
I signed up for their newsletter just so I can kind of keep tabs on what's going. I think I got two different emails last week about new content they're rolling out. No, if you haven't signed in for a little bit, it's worth checking out. It is They are hustling over there. And I think a big part of it is they've been expanding their team and they want to constantly give people value for their subscription. So try it out at linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. That supports the show. And you can sign up for a free seven-day trial, download the study guides and review them, see if they work for you, take a look at the cool note card system that's enhanced by the community, the public profiles that help you show your employer or your spouse. I don't know who you're... This is what I'm doing, honey. This is what I've been doing with my time. This. And then she goes to the public page. I mean, maybe that might work. I don't know. Uh, LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Go there and try out some of the labs, too. It's pretty good stuff. And if and if you've, if you've ever just sort of been curious about some of the topics we cover on this show, lots of good in-depth material on many of the things we discuss. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. All right, Noah, you ready for the Runs Linux this week? I've, I've been waiting all episode for this. I am. Are you a candy fan? Are you, are you a, are you, do you, do you eat much candy? I know you're like a. Mostly chocolate. Yeah. Okay. Well, this might, this might interest you then. This is an M&M sorting machine and Skittles. It sorts them by color and uh, it's able to sort candy by color and they're using Linux as you might expect with a bunch of little microcontrollers. Here's how it works. See, it's got an exit tube, a stepper motor, control buttons here. There's the microcontrollers. There's the mixing motor. There's a little measurement, and with the color sensor there, and then that, as it scans it in, sorts them all out. And uh, you probably guessed that uh, it's a Linux box that's running the software on all this. That's awesome. Look at this, though, man. This is where it gets crazy, is they've posted all of the specs and a total breakdown mm-hmm. of the entire thing. So it's one chambered thing now that you can put on the counter and have it sort all of your M&Ms. I guess nice. everybody knows the red ones taste best. No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Jeez, dude. What? That, well, maybe in Skittles, that may be true, not M&Ms. It's definitely true in Skittles. They're all the same in M&Ms, dude. They're all the same. No, that's what I'm trying to tell you. Uh, so they have a Raspberry Pi in this thing running the uh, GNU slash Linux. So all this is made possible by Raspberry Pi. And I think unless they just – unless they didn't document it correctly in the article, I think it's an original Raspberry Pi too, which is pretty cool. Uh, wow. Look at the work they did on this thing with the LED lights and stuff. They didn't have to mm-hmm. do all that. Well, here's the thing. You didn't need a machine that sorts candy either. The point is you can do it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, six LEDs to the middle plate to shine down on the bowls that hold the candy. That's so cool. There you go. See, Linux on a candy sorting machine. I can't think of anything I've ever seen crazier than this. I mean, I've seen Linux on a lot of things, guys. But this is this has got to be up there on on the list. So our our, cool. our our desktop app pick this week is something that I've loved for a very long time, and I've only switched off of it recently. Mm-hmm. Synapse, Synapse is a is a fantastic launcher that's really really nice on like Mate and XFCE or even GNOME or Unity. The uh, a while back, I was uh, was switching a, a business over to Linux, and we had gone over and we were looking at, at distros to pick. And they had a lot of they were going from XP, so they were older machines. And at the time, I wasn't comfortable putting fourteen oh four proper on it because I was afraid that it wouldn't quite uh, it wouldn't quite handle the Unity interface. And so I went with uh, at at the time the older version of Mate. And they, at this time, they weren't including any sort of launcher with Mate. And the, the the first thing I noticed right off the bat was I had no way to launch programs with the super key. And it was driving me nuts and so uh that was when i first that's what that was the first like time i actually deployed synapse and ever since then i've been just totally in love with it and uh especially after now that gnome do is kind of gone um 
I think it's a really great launcher. And it, it was kind of shocked me that it wasn't in the picks. So I thought, yeah, we have to write that wrong. Super good one. Yeah. And uh, I love it. And really, the only thing that surpasses it for me is the K runner built into the Plasma desktop, which just does a little more stuff and is integrated mm-hmm. in the desktop. But now with later Plasma releases, you just smack that alt space bar drops down and you can you can type all kinds of crazy stuff into that including like you know commands to do to execute in the terminal uh but synapse on the gtk side of the world is my fave so we were talking about plasma desktop today we've talked a lot about kde neon which i think is a solid distribution but there's lots of other ways to get your plasma desktop kubuntu is one that obviously comes to mind and there's a new one that i think is worth highlighting simply because it's not something we see a lot of anymore or ever it's a distribution based on OpenSUSE this week. So our distribution spotlight is for Gecko Linux, which is a Linux spin based on OpenSUSE with a focus on polish and out-of-the-box usability on the desktop. It's available as a static, which is based on OpenSUSE Leap, and a rolling, which is based on Tumbleweed. It it doesn't look like your average Plasma desktop either, and I'm, I'm not sure if that's good or bad. I I like it. I like it. I like their Plasma theme. It's it's a little gnomish, but I like it. I think it looks good. I think it looks like they also offer uh, LXQT edition as well as uh, GNOME Desktop Edition and Cinnamon Desktop Edition. They have uh, all your all your standard stuff. It's different in OpenSUSE in that it comes as an offline installable live DVD or a USB image for static and rolling editions. They say uh, Gecko Linux offers customized editions optimized for different desktop environments, which is kind of neat. They have uh, oh, interesting. This is really interesting. Gecko Linux prefers packages from the Pac-Man repo when they're available. Now, that's particularly interesting. Uh, They say they also come pre-installed with common niceties such as proprietary media codecs, whereas OpenSUSE for legal reasons can't do those things. Um, So if you considered switching to Plasma Desktop and you want to do it from SUSE, maybe the Gecko Linux spin of OpenSUSE might be for that pack. I, I, I think we have a few folks in the community using this. <clears throat> so if you're one of them, mm-hmm. well, give me feedback at linuxactionshow at reddit.com uh, for this episode. I'd be curious to know what you think of Gecko Linux and how that – specifically how that Pac-Man stuff works. It's blown my mind. Blown my mind. Uh, also, I feel like we should just almost on a weekly basis, if not quite, mention that you can get all of our past picks on a routine basis. Producer Michael updates them at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Last picks, LAS picks. So all of our past spotlights, desktops, even distros, even though it's, we've only started doing them again for a little bit while, the past distro picks are on there too. And there's a good list of distros on there. And you heard Noah say earlier that he checked for Synapse and didn't see it on the list. So we are writing that wrong this week. That's something you – know, the show's been going now for 10 years, over 10 years. And so there's so many applications we've talked about. When we find one that we haven't really put on the list, we haven't given the attention it deserves, it feels good to write that wrong. So if you can think of one out there – the subreddit's also a good place to submit that. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com or go to the contact page, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Just choose Linux Action Show and Noah will probably, will probably catch it. Speaking of those emails, let's do the feedback. And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. we got some feedback to get into. I want to talk about the flow of the show. So let's mention System76, who's now rocking them KB legs for the Limur, the Limur, and the Cabby Lake. It's KB. It's KB. You know what you got to do? You should buy one, and then you tell us. Go get a Limur, a nice, thin, lightweight machine with that great new processor. They've also got big servers and desktops. And look at this. They've tightened up the desktop line. This is really the all-star players, starting at the Meerkat, that tiny little machine, working all the way up to the Silverback workstation. 
man, that thing is a total monster. Those laptops, better than ever. From the Lemur with Kaby Lake and the Oryx and the Serval and the Bonobo. Check them out at system76.com. Machines born to run Linux. They're ready to go. They're supported by a company that's in the Linux ecosystem, and they're a great experience right out of the box. System76.com. Go check it out. they got a great site that tells you all about it. You can find out about the people behind the company, support, and special offers at system76.com. Just tell them once you get a machine in the notes that Noah switched it to Linux. Noah switched to Linux. Just, that's important. We're, we're still keeping score. We're, it, Linux Action Show never forgets. It never forgets. So uh, hopefully by this point, if you've ever watched the show ever in your life or listened, you've noticed that we've changed the flow. We started with what is typically our quote-unquote main segment, and we put it at the beginning of the show, and then we've worked our way back. The reason we wanted to make this change is we've been, ex- we've been thinking about experimenting with this for six months at least, maybe longer, and the idea is when we release an episode, we title it based on this main segment that's halfway into the show. Sometimes it's as far as an hour into the show. New people coming along and also longtime listeners, they see the title, oh, I want to listen to that episode, but I got to fast forward through their half hour of content. Or what happens a lot is I've discovered you on YouTube. Or I've discovered you after Googling. And I thought this was about the Plasma desktop team. And I listened to an hour of content, and there was nothing in there about the Plasma desktop. What's going on? It's really it's led to a lot of confusion. And so what we thought maybe if we just re-changed things up, just rejiggered the flow, as they say. Is that a thing? That's a thing, right? We took the flow, and we just sort of re-engineered it and started with the main content at the beginning of the show. Not only might it give the show more momentum, but it would help people that are just expecting to hear that thing get right into it. So what we've decided to do is experiment with this for three episodes. So this is the first one, OVS. We'll do two more after this, just to try to (laughs) – you like that? You totes like that, don't you? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, totes lit, right? <laughs> so we're going to experiment with this for three episodes. Too much time on the googs. See what you guys think, and see what we think, and then when we come back from our our little hibernation session we're doing here with these three in a row, we'll reevaluate and see if we want to stick with it. So uh, don't freak out. Leave your feedback. Let us know what you think. Nothing's permanent yet, um, but I don't know. So far, our first episode, I'm kind of liking it. Are you liking it, Noah? Very much so. Very yeah. much so. Hmm. Okay, well, so that's a good start. So we'll do two more and see how we how we feel. So before we go, let's read these emails. And I think you have the first one this week, sir. Yep. Coriel writes in, and he has a video tearing issue after standby. He says, hello, Lass. I was wondering if you guys could help me with a problem I've been having with my current laptop running Ubuntu GNOME 14.04. The laptop is a Sanger NP8152-S running a dedicated graphics mode on an NVIDIA GTX 1060 GPU. When I put the laptop to sleep via closing the lid, the laptop sleeps and recovers properly. But after being used for roughly five minutes, screen artifacts begin to appear. Artifacts? Mm -hmm. Black areas to the point where the cursor is no longer display and I have to reboot the machine to recover. I have tried all the proprietary binary driver versions available and I am currently operating on 378.09. Thanks for any help. Best regards, Corey. Now, as it turns out, just a couple of weeks ago, I was setting up a Oryx Pro for my dad, and uh, I had this exact issue. This exact issue. Is he on 1404? Uh, 1404. I'm sorry. Sorry. Okay. But so it's a, it, it, yeah. it affects both. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming anyway. Um, and the answer was not to install. Like, I don't exactly know how this translates to an answer for you. So, but the answer for me was 
not to install the NVIDIA driver from NVIDIA's PPA themselves, but install it from the System76 PPA. And But here's what I'm thinking you might be able to do. You might be able to go look at which specific NVIDIA version version of the NVIDIA driver that that System76 is hosting on their PPA and then install that for however you can get it. Because I think that their PPA identifies, you know, as an Oryx Pro and then pulls down that particular uh, driver thing. But I have seen this exact problem and there is a solution. I just I'm not exactly sure how you do it outside the confines of System76. There is a way to do it. Interesting problem. Uh, I I've also I found this that was published um, just a oh last year um, uh, that is about uh, screen tearing with Nvidia graphics on Ubuntu. So I'll put a link to this in the show notes. This might be able. This might also be something to look at. Uh, I think it's interesting that it's happening after sleep. So I what I would also be really curious about is after you've woken up from sleep. Check D message a few times, see if there is something in there, or run journal CTL. Um, I can't remember if it's if it's just tail anymore. I can't remember what the, uh, the, the command off the top of my head. Let me see. Journal. If you run journal CTL, uh, that'll give you. Oh, you're on fourteen oh four. So just just tail your var log um, and see if you get any messages in there, and uh, check D message because you might get kernel messages. I think it's a little. I think it's a little telling that it's happening after sleep. That's the key, I think, to your problem. But check this article too that uh, we've linked to. Also, like Noah yeah. said, look at the version of driver too. that uh, System seventy six is using, and maybe go, go get that specific driver version too. And my problem was too. It was only after sleep. If I, you know, on a fresh boot, it oh really? Fine. Jeez, yeah, it was that's only after weird. sleep. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's weird. Oh, guess what? We just got linked in the. Uh, guess what? We just got linked to the chat room, right here. Uh, it looks like this is the System seventy six driver version right here. So I will oh, put a, there you go. Yeah, so I will put a link to that in the show notes too. So there you go. We have the article that will maybe help with the tearing and we have the uh, specific driver package because System76 has it up on GitHub because they're cool like that. All right. Next email comes in from Steve on getting back into it. He says, hey, guys, greeting from down under. I'm a longtime Linux and Unix user and was, wa- and was working in the field since the mid-90s. However, about five years ago, I left as my wife and I wanted to start a family and I've been a stay-at-home dad since. My youngest has just started school, and it's time for me to re-enter the system administration world. What advice can you give me to help me get a leg up? I've already signed up for Linux Academy and working through different courses to brush up my skills. I'm also considering updating my Solaris credentials to Solaris 11 Associate. Can you advise anything more with regards to my resume and more interviews that would help me? Love the show. Steve. No, I uh, kind of get would love to get your perspective on this before I jump in. I'd love to hear what you think. For starters, I attend almost every major Linux conference in the United States. All you know, routinely, with the exception of I, I guess we haven't done Texas Linux Fest. I've been to all of them at least once, and I, I make the rounds. I gotta tell you, man, I have not heard a lot of people talking about Solaris, so I don't know that I would put a lot of emphasis there. I will tell you that. The if you're if you're looking for a certification that really means that has a lot of weight in the in the Linux world, I'm a big proponent of the, the RHCSA. It's only 300 bucks, and Linux Academy does a great job of getting you ready for that. So you don't have to take their $2,700 course or whatever it is they tell you. You just got to pay the $300 for the test. Once you get your certification, or even before you get your certification, I would start working at. Uh, at smaller businesses, there's going to be a plenty of, of places that you could get some part time work 
and just offers you walk in and say, Hey, you know, I'm hanging up a shingle and I'd be happy to help you with X, Y, Z. And that way you can, you, you, you can phrase that when you go looking for a job and say, I have system administration experience. I manage seven businesses in my community. And it doesn't matter if they only had two or three computers. The, the, the point is you, you, you get that, you can punch that hole. You can check that box. I like that. I really like the suggestion of maybe looking at the Red Hat certifications. That would be, I think, time much better spent than Solaris. Steve, yeah. I'm sure you may be not or may aware that it sounds like Solaris is pretty much on the outs. However, that said, that also could mean if you want to specialize in being the guy that still knows how to administer Solaris systems, there could very well be a business opportunity around that. So don't totally abandon your Solaris ideas, but don't plan on it being the platform that's going to carry you for X amount of years. Uh, I really like Noah's suggestion. I would ask yourself what you want to end up doing now. Do you want to be a system administrator that is sort of valued because he can support the legacy model and the older systems and the on-premises infrastructure and the Mm -hmm. big Solaris boxes, um, which is going to be a smaller and smaller marketplace over the years, but still very viable for a long time. And will, by its very nature, become more specialized as time goes on, which means you may be able to get more money. However, you may also want to consider, since you're starting anew, focusing on the big things in the market right now. This is going to sound crazy, but maybe taking some courses on how AWS works or taking courses on how things like Azure work. Now, I know this is this sounds nuts, but if you think about the competitive landscape going forward, it probably wouldn't be bad for somebody who's been out of the market for a long time, I think you said five years, uh, to brush up on what's now sort of the big hip trends in the industry because it's undoubtedly going to come up in any modern assistant admin interview. So even having a basic understanding of how these technologies work, what they offer and what problems they solve for business, even if you decide it's not for you, would be very valuable for you. So now that you've already got the subscription, consider that. And I would say just reconsider the Solaris stuff, maybe consider pivoting to like the Red Hat certifications or even looking at what Ubuntu has for certifications and going that direction. But you could specialize in the Solaris. I think it's a great I think it's a great journey you're about to start on, Steve, and it's a super interesting path because there's a lot of different forks in the road right now that you may end up going down and be totally you could you could be the Solaris guy for the next 25 years probably you'd have to really find that market but you could probably do it um coming from the past past lives where the the guys that were still alive that understood and knew how to work our system 390 they just became more and more valuable as time went on probably going to start happening to Solaris admins too if you got a question for the show jupiterbroadcasting.com/contact is where you go, drop down the box and say Linux Action Show, or start a thread at linuxactionshow.reddit.com. You can tweet Mr. Noah over there. He is... At Colonel Linux. And the, the company business. site is at AltaSpeed. Yep, where mm-hmm. he pretends to be a wire switcher. At AltaSpeed. Right. Yeah. You know what I got? You know <laughs> what I got? You know what I got? You know what I got? I got all morning. Yeah. Hey, are you guys using wire for the show today? Yeah. You are know, you, you know using wire? You know what's fu- so, you know funny about that is I don't personally handle our social media stuff, right? Like that's you, not – You got business people. Right? You got business but people. But here's the, here's the problem. I'm not <laughs> – this is embarrassing. This is I'm not always aware of what goes out. Yeah. So this morning, this morning, somebody asked me, they're like, so you guys switched to wire, huh? And I'm like, we don't really use teleconferencing at all. And they're like, yeah. well, that's funny. You tweeted about it. And I'm like, we did? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. And then I look at this whole thing and I'm like, oh, that's good. Yes, yes. yes. No one's too busy taking busy taking care of the business papers and making the clients happy. That's you don't got time to tweet. I, I say more power to you. I'm at Chris LAS. If you want to see what I'm doing behind the scenes or in my personal life, check out the vlog at youtube.com slash chrisfisher. And if you're going, what, Chris Fisher, vlog, what? Why would I? 
I know, I know, I don't know, but I, it turns out people really enjoy the hell out of it, and you might too. So check it out, youtube.com slash Chris Fisher. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of the Linux Action Show, and we'll see you right back here next week. Right. I can't oh, believe you ever replaced that keyboard. You just did that. You just went. You just did a little zoop zoop. Little zoop zoop. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I think this too about plasma is I can't think of another desktop environment with maybe the exception, although it's not as much on the surface, but how Matei just is making the transition to GTK three and like that's mm-hmm. so that's a huge deal. So I don't want to downplay that, but like I can't think of a Linux desktop environment that. When I take a break from it and come back, so much radical improvement has happened. Um, sure. I can, I've seen radical change sometimes. Or in the case of Unity, it, it literally feels like Unity 7 really hasn't changed much at all. Just really small stuff. Which is, right, I just right. love it. Right. I love it. It makes me so happy. Right. But imagine, imagine if every time you came back, there was like real noticeable improvement. Like, yeah. like this is way better. Like when there's stuff I see now in 5.9. I still, I know I mentioned this before, but I used it a dozen times this morning. When I take a screenshot with 5.9 and I save it, the desktop notification comes up with the fucking screenshot in the notification, and I can click that notification screenshot, and I can drag it into the, into the document I'm working with, and the screenshot's right there. That's the kind of integration that I'm talking about that I think is really cool. That makes it feel like this is an actual product and put together. You know what else is big? You know what's huge? I can mute in the task manager. Yeah, I heard you say that earlier. Huge, dude. Huge. Huge. <laughs> huge. And these are huge improvements. You come back, and it's just huge things. Like, huge, like, really nice things to have are just there now. And I don't see a lot of other desktop environments at doing it at that pace. Hi there, chat room. This is Chris, and I am talking very bigly. 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 Bigly.